One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by FreshBooks. FreshBooks makes it easy to stay in the black without seeing red. It's genuinely easy to invoice, expense, and manage your books as a small business owner. For a limited time, FreshBooks is offering our listeners 50% off your first three months when you sign up for a paid plan. Go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com oppo for 50% off your first three months. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by Wealthbar. Wealthbar makes it ridiculously easy to access professionally managed investments and financial advice. You'll also get unlimited financial advice from a certified financial planner, when and however it works for you. Sign up in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand and get a $100 fee credit. Visit wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand for more offer details. From CanadaLand, this is Oppo. I'm Sandy Garasino in Vancouver. And I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary. And if last episode was drunk oppo, then this episode is hungover oppo. Because the news, it hadn't gotten better. People are just curling up in their wherever they can curl up. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about COVID. Because let's be blunt, there's nothing else to talk about. This is just getting more and more dire every day. So, op-heads, the Globe and Mail broke a story suggesting that the Liberals intended to pass a COVID aid bill on Tuesday that would have granted them unprecedented powers. Namely, to delegate the authority to raise and levy taxes to the finance minister without any parliamentary oversight. This, to be clear, is absolutely bonkers. Well, shortly after that story broke, word went around that the Liberals were backtracking. We now don't know what's going to hit the floor of Parliament on Tuesday, but you can certainly expect that Sandy and I will be discussing it in our next show. Events, my people, events. So stay tuned. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks the preposterously easy-to-use accounting software. You started a small business because you love what you do, so why don't you have time to actually do it? FreshBooks helps you focus on your craft by saving you time invoicing, expensing, and tracking your work. It's so easy to use with built-in automation to ensure you spend as little time as possible invoicing, expensing, and tracking time. FreshBooks has plans designed for all types of small businesses. So whether you're a freelancer, photographer, a carpenter, or a podcaster, choose a plan that's right for you. FreshBooks is a simple and intuitive tool for small business owners. But if you ever need a bit of help wrapping your head around something, they have an award-winning Toronto-based support team who are always happy to help. For a limited time, FreshBooks is offering listeners 50% off your first three months when you sign up for a paid plan. 
Go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash oppo for 50% off your first three months. So just to give you guys an update, it is now Monday in which we're taping this. Of course, the state of affairs changes day by day. Sandy, what are the numbers looking like in BC? Because we know that BC has been a real hotspot so far. BC has been on a per capita basis the uh, hotspot in Canada. Uh, we've just got numbers just a few minutes ago, 48 new cases, bringing it to a total of 472. Now, mind you, those are two-day numbers. So that's over because yesterday was Sunday, three new deaths for a total of 13 deaths and a number of recovered. What's significant about British Columbia, and it, it's the teeny tiniest green shoot, which is that we're now focusing our testing, but our testing has been at very, very high levels um, compared to world rates. And this number of 48 over two days is around 5 to 6%. We're tracking at a rate that's better than we would have expected, certainly with the social distancing coming in as recently as it did. So just to, our growth rate in new cases is at about 5%. I think that kind of optimism is reflected in the Alberta numbers. I think our last results showed a growth rate of about 14%. Typically, a lot of jurisdictions are seeing growth rates closer to 33%. And that's when you get that kind of wild exponential growth that we're desperately trying to avoid. So that's actually really promising early news. On the other side, you know, um, our colleague Les Perot in Quebec has just reported that, you know, Quebec is now uh, registering 628 cases, which is an increase of 409 cases. Um, That's an enormous jump. However, uh, you know, it does include now probable cases. So it's a bit of a statistical artifact. Also, there are now 20 people in intensive care in that province, which is an increase of seven. So we're starting to see the outbreak really take hold in Quebec as well. But that being said, you know, I do think that if you look at the Canadian data overall, there are some very, very early signs that social distancing is starting to take effect. Um, We're starting to see either a decline or a stabilization in the recorded new cases. And, And I think that there's a reason to be sort of generally kind of optimistic about where this is going, which is why I'm kind of um, confused. But when I see a lot of my journalistic colleagues calling for the federal government to invoke the Emergency Measures Act, you know, just from an ideological perspective, I get kind of squeaky when I start to see, you know, people clamoring for a reduction in our civil liberties. Well, yes. And, you know, speaking again from ground zero, I'm here in Vancouver. Vancouver and North Vancouver are having the highest concentration per capita in the country. And I can tell you that social compliance has been phenomenal, despite what we've seen on social media of photographs of of people at the beaches. It's not the same as uh, South Beach, Florida. And by the way, that has really come down quickly. Now, here's the question. What would the Emergency Measures Act do about any of this that the Vancouver City Police and the RCMP and other uh, municipalities in the greater Vancouver area can't do? I don't actually, frankly, see the uh, impact. I don't see that, that, that they're really adding anything. I think this is once again kind of a clamoring. And this reminds me a little bit of the clamoring over the border closures 
because we're basically getting the same number of people crossing the border as we did before, because it was only down to essential crossings and returning Canadians anyway. Put it this way, I was watching, because I'm very closely personally attached to this issue for personal reasons, and I was watching the cameras for a week going up to the border closure, and it's the same amount of traffic crossing the borders that I can see. So we don't see data particularly, but anyway, the point of this whole story is that we had public clamoring over things like a late press conference, uh, border closures, and now Emergency Measures Act, when what we really need, we need to have an economic rescue and we need public health and community compliance. And that is how we're going to beat this, is through community compliance, social distancing, and an economic aid package to keep employees in the money. On this point, you and I are attuned. Uh, you know, I think that if there are pockets of non-compliance, the answer to that question isn't necessarily to bring in the military or to, or to bring the hammer down right away. I think a better approach might be to ask yourselves why that compliance isn't happening. Is it a communications problem or is it a question about social contract and, you know, the failure to sort of build a consensus around these issues. I think right now we do have a general consensus about the idea of, of, of flattening the curve and, and social distancing, and that's the appropriate answer. I'm concerned about that consensus as this starts to wear on for several weeks. Yeah. But one of the things that I think you're you're absolutely correct about what we need to be doing is, is talking about a more significant um, financial aid package. I mean, the $82 billion that has been announced so far, you know, $55 billion of that is just tax deferrals for businesses. That's not going to do much good for people whose rents are about to come due, for people who um, don't have the savings to weather two, three, four weeks of unemployment, and who are concerned about, you know, where they're going to get their next check for their next, you know, grocery run. So, like, I, I think that, you know, if you want to create buy-in on some of these compliance measures, a much more effective way to do that is going to be through something like a temporary universal basic income than by, you know, having soldiers flashily, you know, walk around your city streets in camo fatigues and guns. Frankly, I just don't see the purpose of a military um, intervention here at all. But we have to remember that the way that the package right now currently stands. It's $27 billion in direct support to Canadians and $55 billion in um, aid in, to business in tax deferrals. One of the things that we don't know, there's a lot of devil in the details here, but businesses need to be encouraged to keep their employees on payroll as much as possible. One of the people that I've been paying close attention to is Neil Kashkari, who NPR just recently interviewed. And Neil Kashkari operated the TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, um, and the auto bailout in the U.S. during the financial crisis. And he was saying the two main things that we need to be focusing on, that government must focus on, are speed and being very aggressive in terms of numbers. And the second thing is not to get overly concerned about screening, where you can get tied down in politics. But the other thing that he was saying, and I think that everybody now actually really understands this, I think almost all policy makers and economists and government leaders seem to have understood this message, which is that it's getting money into the pockets of the average citizen and into all Canadians so that they can get by this is where, and when you're talking about social cohesion, Jen, I think this is the absolute critical key ingredient, is that we have got to relieve the people most in need, the people that don't have the savings. So we've got to be supporting rent support, mortgage support, uh, utility support, 
banking and tax deferral so that we're right down to that bare operating expenses of basically feeding your family. And not only that, but I would say, hey, a message from the government that goes something like, hey, guys, we're going to pay you $1,500 a month to stay home and play civilization and not leave your house is a much, much more effective way to get buy-in and mm-hmm. compliance than do this because we're telling you to, because we're evoking World War II, and if you don't, we're going to fine you. Like, try the carrot before the stick. My concern about this pandemic is that I think that there's a hope that, you know, this pandemic will, will lift in a couple of weeks and everything will back to normal. I think that this pandemic is going to fundamentally force us and governments to readdress and renegotiate the social contract. I think that whether or not we move into the foundations of a more compassionate society with a strong and stable social safety net, or whether or not this pandemic, you know, exacerbates the existing trends for inequality that we've been witnessing to date, is going to depend on how we react financially to this crisis right now today. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we sort of try and repeat the 2008 bailout where you know, we just gave a bunch of cash to businesses who may or may not use that cash to pay people. We risk creating, you know, the Occupy type backlash, but tenfold worse, because what we're doing here to average people is much, much worse than what 2008 did to average people. I think the only answer that is going to work here, I mean, bluntly, is checks in the mail. And and like, you know, that's an interesting thing coming from me. I know, you know I'm, I'm sort of personally deeply ambivalent about the idea of a universal basic income. I think that there are real risks involved. I'm going to reserve the right to either be either for it or against it at a later date. I don't want to get into it. But, you know, this it's is an this, emergency. This, this is a crisis. This is an emergency. And you know what? People are going to need money for food and they're going to need money for, for bills and they're going to need that cash really, really quickly. And you can't trust the money is just going to eventually trickle down through deferrals. You can't trust that, you know, people will be able to wait until their next GST check. You know, like that's that's not going to be fast enough. And Jen, isn't it interesting, you know, how quickly a concept like universal basic income has suddenly become politically palatable, as have so many. I think that a lot of our services that we've taken for granted, uh, you know, our healthcare system, I mean, even our education system, now that we're understanding, now that parents are, are teaching their kids at home, you know, we're starting to see that net, that cohesive government support system that is there for Canadians in an emergency is coming to the fore and is changing the debate. The universal basic income has been out there as a concept, and it's even accepted amongst a lot of the business community because we are understanding the impact of globalization, um, automation, and the destruction of the employment base. And I'm sure that this is something that Alberta, it would probably really help Alberta at this time. It might or it may not. I'm going to put a pin on the UBI because you know what? I think we should get some economist wonks on the show to maybe talk about that on a future date. Um, because as I said, you know, personally, I think that there are there are downsides and risks. But you know what? I, I'm going to admit this. I haven't done enough research into the UBI to, to have a really strong or firm opinion on it. So I'm going to hold off on that. What I do think is really fascinating about this virus, however, is the degree to which it seems almost designed to, you know, test our weaknesses as a society, right? It's testing our political weaknesses, as we're seeing in the United States. It's testing our healthcare systems. It's testing our basic concepts of gender equality. You know, there's something about the disease. It's it's a deadly disease, but it's not 
deadly enough to get people necessarily on board out of fear and fear alone. It's a deadly disease, but it's not a deadly disease equally across demographic groups. So you have the interests of some demographic groups being weighed against the interests of other demographic groups. And I'm talking about age demographics here. So like this is a real challenge for Western democracies and how we respond to it is going to have lasting impacts, I think, for us for really a generation. This is not the time for timidity. It's not the time for half measures. And I think that we, we really, really need to see more from the federal government. It's, and it's going to be very dramatic. I do take hope. I take hope because those BC numbers are, I'm praying and praying that we can hold something even remotely close to that because I was not expecting to see a slowing in the rate of increase this early. I was expecting that social distancing, our, our policies came in about a week ago. And uh, I was not expecting to see an impact for another week, at least. Uh, and we, we're seeing Canadians uniting behind the federal government and uniting behind their governments. And we're seeing governments and opposition parties speaking with a single voice for the most part. And I think that we are seeing unity and there, and the government has indicated it is going to be there for Canadians. So I'm going to hope and pray that we are going to see this curve flatten, that we are going to see these results start to take hold and that together we're going to get through it because really the only way that we will get through it is if we do as a nation, as a people, come together and unite to combat this. And I'm just seeing so much compliance in Vancouver. I just really believe that we are going to get there. You know what they say about depressions? They're fantastic investing opportunities, provided <laughs> you have the money to invest in them. Well, this episode of Oppo will help you with that because it's brought to you in part by Wealthbar. Wealthbar believes your investment experience shouldn't be determined by how much you have. So whether you've got $1,000 or a million, you can get access to professionally managed investments and financial advice. If you don't need it, maybe put that UBI check into your first investment account. Buy low, sell high. A depressed market can represent a buying opportunity. So if you are in a situation where you can continue contributing to your investments, you should be purchasing investments on sale. Because my goodness, the sales. Wow. There's also the value of advice. We are definitely in a down market, and that has a lot of investors feeling anxious about their investments. Wealthbar offers professional financial advisors to all clients, regardless of how much they have to invest. They'll work with you on a financial plan or answer questions about your investments. Start investing right away from the comfort of your PJs. Talk to a financial professional by chat, email, or phone, or book an appointment through the app. All at your convenience. It's social distancing compliant. Sign up in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand and get a $100 fee credit. Visit wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand for more offer details. For further context, we spoke to the Vancouver correspondent of the South China Morning Post, Ian Young, who's got over 25 years reporting internationally uh, from Hong Kong and from around the world. Uh, significantly, he reported from Hong Kong during the SARS outbreak. And so he has a lot to tell Canadians about that experience and about how we should be viewing the numbers that we're seeing emerging today. 
Ian, you have been writing, you've been active on Twitter, and you've been writing on this subject, on the coronavirus, and in particular about community context, community influence, community behavior. Maybe you could start out by telling us what you're seeing between the difference between Hong Kong and Canada uh, and other locations internationally, what you're seeing in behavior and how that is playing out in the data. I think the clearest way to see the difference is simply looking at the numbers. I mean, obviously, you want your infection rate from COVID-19 to be zero or close as close to zero as possible. But Hong Kong's done some pretty... just had really remarkable outcomes. I mean, Hong Kong, since it passed the 100 infection mark, it's it's been increasing at a rate of 4.5% per day. Now, Canada since it passed the 100 infection mark, has been increasing at a rate of 30% per day. Um, And that is obviously an exponential difference. It took Hong Kong, for instance, 17 days to reach the 200 mark once it had passed the 100 mark. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It took Canada three days. So what I'm hearing from you, Ian, is that we're not actually, like, even though we might be doing a better job than the Americans, we're not actually meeting the bar when it comes to flattening the curve in comparison to a lot of other Asian countries like Hong Kong or South Korea. Well, no, because we're, we we are literally a long way behind the curve because it's, cause it's taken us so long to take this seriously. I mean, Hong Kong was taking this seriously and socially um, self-isolating and introducing pretty harsh quarantine-type measures and wearing face masks and had cancelled schools back in January. Mm. So they're well ahead of us. We're just introducing these relatively strict measures of social isolation in the past week. So we're not going to be seeing um, Hong Kong-style curve flattening, at least until we pass the threshold of the incubation period for another week or so. And then it's going to take quite a while to get us down from 30% down to 4.5%. Just for our listeners, can you uh, extrapolate the impact of that kind of trajectory, the difference between a 4.5% daily rate of increase versus a 30% daily rate of increase? How does that play out in two weeks two months, etc. As I said, this is about exponential growth. Uh, Hong Kong's exponential growth in one month's time at 4.5%, that puts it on track to go from about 200 cases to about 700 or 800 cases in a month's time. Canada's exponential growth rate of about 29.5%, we've also got about, we've got about 700 cases now, but in a month's time, we'd have a million cases. So, you know, this the question is, do you want a million cases or do you want hundreds of cases. Obviously, it's a very clear answer, but it's going to require a vast amount of cooperation and a Hong Kong-style community consensus to make that happen. I want to ask you that question about community consensus, because I think it's super important going forward. Um, But first, I want to ask you a little bit about what's going on in British Columbia as opposed to Ontario, because a lot of the um, reporting about Canada's COVID cases is very Ontario-focused. 
But if you look at the numbers, BC is actually in a much more difficult state. And I was wondering if you could describe for us on the ground what's happening in British Columbia. Yeah, well, obviously we had a lot of uh, had a lot of imported cases to start with. Uh, they're taking it seriously now. They've decided to shut schools and things like that. They're ordering people to self-isolate. Uh, they've shut down all restaurants and bars, uh, at least ones that are serving to the public in-house. And you know, the city is basically shut down, or it should be. The problem is that you have people who don't necessarily take this uh, command to stay at home which we've heard from all levels of government, not just in BC, but to stay at home. But a lot of people aren't taking that as seriously as they should. For instance, I can, I'm looking out here from my living room right at this very second, and um, there's a mob of kids slamming into each other on a basketball court. I can see that now. <laughs> now, um, maybe they're all in the same household, but that to me doesn't, you know, it look like social isolation to me. It doesn't look like social distancing. And they're all telling their parents that, that they're being good. They're just going out with one friend. So that's, we know. <laughs> Maybe that's the case. I could actually also see a couple of parents on the sidelines. So I'm not sure. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not sure. Look, I can understand why people want to go out and get a little bit of fresh air, but it does require a big consensus here to make, um, to, to flatten the curve and to stop this um, deadly pandemic from spreading. You don't want to say it in a way that simply terrifies people, but people do need to be appropriately scared of, of why this is happening. These are unprecedented steps and they're being taken because of an unprecedented threat, at least in our lifetime. Now, Ian, you and your wife were both reporting in Hong Kong during the SARS epidemic. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there and how you see that informing the behaviours of the Hong Kong population, the Asian population generally, and what you're seeing in Vancouver? Because we are seeing a very marked divergence in behaviours between the Chinese community and the non-Chinese community in Vancouver. So tell us more about what you, your own experience and what you're seeing. Sure, I think I probably should add that um, both my wife and I are members of the Chinese community, my accent uh, notwithstanding. Um, but yeah, we were uh, both in Hong Kong during the SARS epidemic. Um, I was the city editor and my wife was uh, a frontline reporter reporting on the SARS outbreak. Uh, and we were both actually in the South China Morning Post's quarantine team. And what that was is the SCMP set up um, a specific group of people who um, were effectively the team that was going to keep the paper running if the main operations shut down. And, you know, we, we were socially isolated. We were kept in a different office on the other side of uh, Victoria Harbour, isolated from our um, our colleagues. In the event that it all went to hell, you know, in the event that the harbour crossings were closed down, uh, we were supposed to keep pumping out the newspaper and providing online reports and things like that. Um, it was a diff It was a, a wild time. And it, what's happening here now in Canada is uh, very reminiscent of it. We would uh, wear face masks. Everyone wore face masks. Um, we would come home at the end of the night and we would immediately strip off and wash everything um, as soon as we walked back into the house uh, and then jump in the shower and then the next day we'd start it all over again. We're seeing the same thing in the Chinese communities here in, in Vancouver now because they're very uh, enmeshed with uh, the Hong Kong and Chinese communities right now back home. The response to COVID-19 is, as you 
point out, very different between the ethnic communities. In the Chinese communities, because they're scarred and shaped by what happened during SARS and that terrible potential outcome that was looming over everyone uh, has taken this much more seriously, much more quickly uh, than I think any other sector of, of, of the Canadian community. I mean, a, a month ago, people were self-isolating. You know, Chinese shopping malls and restaurants have largely been deserted for weeks. You know, I, I'm a regular at um, a place called Aberdeen Mall, which is in Richmond, which is the most Chinese city in the world outside of Asia. Uh, that mall, uh, the food court, is normally packed, hundreds of seats packed. You'd have you have to walk around at dinner time to try, you know, have to stalk to find a seat. Um, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago we went there and there were like five people in there. I mean, mm. it it had been deserted. So the communities are responding differently, very differently. And what was taken seriously then needs to be taken just as seriously now by the non-Chinese communities. I think they're trying to trying to make that happen. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix, um, the, the health minister here, uh, are, are certainly trying to do their best. And Bonnie Henry being British Columbia's um, chief medical health officer. That's right. And how fast has it been growing in B.C.? Yeah, there was some cause for optimism a little while ago, but honestly, we're, we're on a traject- same trajectory as the rest of Canada. Um, you know, we have a large number of cases here and we're on the same trajectory um, of, of high 20s or 30%, something like that at the moment. Gosh, fingers crossed, um, because there's a lot of talk about border closures and things like that. And I think today we, we had um, uh, Justin Trudeau talking about um, the imminent um, closure of the border. The, the US border and turning away irregular migrants and things like that. But to my mind, um, at this stage of the game, um, that is just a bit of a sideshow because what we're trying to prevent is the spread of the disease within the community. It doesn't really matter at this stage, closing borders and things like that. Yes, I, I agree, they need to be done. But the game, the whole game entirely, if <laughs> you're talking about exponential growth, is preventing community spread. And, it's, and that's going to be achieved if it is achieved by social distancing. I think that that's a thing. That's a thing that a lot of people struggle to understand the mathematics behind that. But if you start to think about it, it makes perfect sense. Like if your virus is reproducing at a rate of you know two people per infection, and that is the rate of community spread, and you're bringing in new people over the border, um, then that's going to contribute to that contributing spread. But if you manage to reduce the rate of reproduction to below zero, then you can bring a, a relatively large number of infected people across the border, and it's not actually going to contribute to that exponential growth. I think the key is social distancing, regardless of whether or not you're bringing in people who are even infected. Obviously, that is not the goal. No. But if you do that, social distancing is the key. Uh, and we do have, we've got community spread happening right here, right now in Canada and in BC, and it's untracked. And uh, there is absolutely no way, regardless of how much testing you do, you can't track it down. You can do your contact tracing of suspected cases and all of that, but there has been asymptomatic spread, that's been known. Um, there is untracked spread continuing to happen in BC and in Canada, that is known. And you simply cannot test the entirety of the population of Canada or BC to find asymptomatic patients. It's just not possible. Uh, so the focus, the entire focus in terms of mental energy and political willpower has to be on preventing community spread and that's social distancing. 
let's talk about the testing a little bit because there's such a wide variance. We hear about South Korea being the gold standard of testing, and then we're seeing the United States where it's almost as if there's an active policy of suppressing testing. And Canada, we're doing a reasonably good job of testing, I think. But maybe you could tell us a little bit, drill into those numbers a little bit and tell us a little bit more about what you see because you've studied this closely. Yeah, I think there is um, a bit of a misunderstanding about um, the difference in testing. Yes, oh, look, the WHO and everyone everyone who knows about this says test, 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 test as many suspected cases, test all suspected cases of this disease if possible. But the key is social isolation. Testing won't fix this. Um, and certainly not some sort of harebrained idea that um, we're going to be able to test the entirety of the population we're going to be testing to try and find patients who haven't been, who haven't got symptoms, for instance. That's just not, that's just not possible. And if you drill into the South Korean numbers, for instance, I think that to an extent, the South Korean testing regime, which has been incredible, 15,000 tests per day, it's been fetishised a bit, I think, in the West, as, as if this is uh, something that is firstly achievable and secondly can achieve the South Korea-style curve flattening that we saw. My understanding is part of the reason why you test at that rate, 10, 20,000 people a day, is because it helps asymptomatic people more effectively isolate. Yes and no, because um, the vast bulk of that testing, those, those 300,000 cases, in fact, more than 200,000 of the 300 cases wasn't just asymptomatic. It was targeted. It was, you know, mm. it might have been asymptomatic, but those patients were known by name. They were, in fact, members of a quasi-Christian cult, which was hmm. at the centre of a vast outbreak, a vast known and occurring outbreak. So what they did is they got the membership of this cult, they got their names, and they tested all 212,000 of them. And they represent the vast majority of the 300,000 people who have been tested. And if you remove that targeted testing and you, and you look at the remaining 75 or, or 80,000 or whatever cases, the rate of testing of the general population in South Korea is no different to the rate of testing in BC. You know, it's no different mm. to the rate of testing in British Columbia. And another thing, this idea that we could somehow scale up our testing to match that of South Korea. South Korea is a country of 50 million people with, I don't know how much of a bigger GDP than, than BC. It also has a vast private medical system. 90% of South Korea's testing um, is conducted by private facilities. We don't have that system here. We're not South Korea, so wishing it for it just won't make it happen. You know, I mean, I'd like to win the lottery too, but it's just not going to happen. Is part of the rationale for getting as broad testing as possible to be able to collect data that will inform policy decisions? Where is infection occurring? Not so much from the point of view of, oh, now we'll know everybody who's got it, but we'll be able to see clusters. We'll be able to discern uh, patterns and elements that can assist in slowing the spread. I would say yes, and absolutely, absolutely. I, should, I don't want to be misconstrued as saying that, that, that we should not be testing as many people as humanly possible and that we should not be scaling that up as quickly as humanly possible, um, you know, to achieve the goal that you're talking about. Um, but randomised testing is not going to give us some sort of, you know, magic bullet to fix this because this is happening now and it's happening fast. Let's imagine that we could do this overnight. We could snap our fingers and all of a sudden we could be South Korea and we could, be, we could test 15,000 people to, per day, you know. 
this thing is going to be on us within within weeks. It's on us now. It's predicted to peak in in twelve weeks' time. You know, I mean, in in a hundred days, we could we could test one point five million British Columbians out of a population of five million. But you know, I have to say, kind of so what? That represents thirty percent of the entire population. It would take one day of reinfection to surpass that randomised capture. There's a, a misunderstanding of the math, I think, behind behind what randomised testing can do and what it can achieve. You know, we've seen some optimistic news coming out of China. They've managed to dramatically reduce their spread. How much faith do you have in the numbers that are being reported right now coming out of China? In general, I don't think you have faith in um, Chinese numbers, but I think it's clear that they have, in fact, stopped the vast exponential spread that they were facing. Because if that had occurred, that would have been very clearly evidenced in um, on the ground. You, you, China can suppress all the information it likes domestically, but there's no way that information about um, exponential growth on that scale could be kept secret. So I think they have succeeded uh, to that extent. But they've succeeded by these incredibly draconian measures of roadblocking cities and things like that, you know, and people have been, you know, basically locked in their homes or told to lock themselves at home. Um, So it's not a surprise that they have done this, but it's not like it's been fixed. I mean, people still aren't immune to COVID-19 and it won't be wiped out in the community. So what you're doing is you're basically just kicking the can down the road, as we are too. We're trying to kick the can down the road until we have um, better medical interventions, a vaccine and, and, um, you know, treatments to help fix this. But we're still not immune to COVID-19. So, you know, that's worth bearing in mind. What is your message to Canadians about how we can achieve that 4.5% growth rate that Hong Kong is experiencing now? The answer to this, in terms of flattening the curve, lies within Canadians. It lies with individual behaviour. The idea that we're going to cross our fingers and wait for a magic bullet in the form of a vaccine or the form of comprehensive randomised testing of the entire population is pie in the sky and is irresponsible. The answer is in self-isolation. What happened in Hong Kong isn't necessarily a result of high technical expertise. There is that. But basically, you had a vast community consensus to beat this together. People self-isolated. Wearing of face masks is ubiquitous. You can't go outside without a face mask without people looking at you funny. Now, the opposite is true here in Canada at the moment. You go out in a face mask here and people will look at you funny thinking you're paranoid or crazy, but it's not true in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong has had these remarkable outcomes. You know, it's basically, we can't compare the way COVID-19 has spread in Hong Kong to the way it has previously spread because it's a new disease, but we can look at the way that influenza has spread. And basically, Hong Kong wiped out influenza this season. It stopped, you know, in early February. You know, there's, there's like a handful of cases of flu in Hong Kong right now when there'd normally be hundreds and hundreds of them. And, you know, Hong Kong does vast flu testing. It tests by the thousands every week to try and track flu. Um, so these outcomes are trackable, they're provable, and they are a result of people all being on board and all taking part, and take, and not just acting selfishly. These behaviours to prevent yourself from getting infected, they aren't just selfish acts. They are caring acts, because what you do then is that you prevent yourself from infecting someone else. You prevent yourself from infecting a stranger or a loved one or a grandparent or whatever. So these aren't, these aren't selfish behaviours, 
to prevent yourself from getting sick. But caring and responsible behaviours to prevent the community from getting sick. I would just say stay at home. Stay at home. If you go out, make sure you wash your hands, exercise good hygiene, socially distance yourself. Um, and if you want to wear a mask, don't worry about people giving you dirty looks. Just wear a mask if you want. Well, that's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back again in two weeks when I'm sure the news will be far rosier. Remember, wash your hands. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter at oppocast. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton and our theme music by Nathan Burley. And wash your hands, everybody, and social distancing, social distancing. Social distancing.